You're listening to the Urban Warfare Project Podcast from the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm John Spencer, Chair of Urban Warfare Studies at MWI and host of this podcast. Hello, listeners. Just a quick note about this episode. It is part two of my conversation with General Yom Tov Tamir from the Israeli Defense Force Armor Corps. In part one, we heard about his role in the Yom Kippur War in 1973 as a battalion commander in the Sinai as the entire Egyptian army made its way across and him as an armor battalion commander held the line and the amount of damage they took and the importance of leadership and will of the soldiers. We're going to pick up in the conversation in this episode and continue that where we left off, but also get into the 1973 Battle of Suez City, the importance of armor in urban warfare, and the importance of armor in general. But make sure you go back, if you haven't already, and listen to part one. Enjoy the episode. Sir, welcome back to the show. I think where we left off on part one was you had lost your battalion. You'd been given a new battalion. You had joined the 4460th Brigade and had broken out being surrounded by the enemy, sir. Uh, now we were sitting on the sand dune hill and count what left from this battalion and what to do. Bear in mind that in that time, I didn't have the picture of the entire war. I thought that this is our mission here to defend this sector. I didn't know if some reserve or some other units will come. So I thought that we will join the 460 Brigade. It doesn't matter in which job, because many, many soldiers left without tanks, but they are still alive. They can do something. And some were light injured, and after uh, were visiting the doctor, they came back. So I said, all of us will join the 460, doesn't matter in which job. For example, four officers took a tank as a crew member, company commander, and his three platoon leaders as a crew. Yes, sir. And the 460 was already a brigade that was just formed through the armor school instructors and basically anybody. That... That's right. So that, that's pretty amazing. Yeah. And I lost them two days later, all of them. And while we are thinking, the brigade commander, Colonel Gabi Amir, later General Amir, he came and he said, look, I see what happened with your battalion. I lost my G3 inside Kantara. I beg you, come like that. He said, I beg you, come and be the G3 of my brigade because you are familiar with terrain and it's a very complicated area. We are, you know, our school. We are not familiar with that here. And I replied, okay. So I became a G3 of this brigade. But I told him, this is only temporary because somehow I went back to have my battalion. The 9th Armor Battalion, sir? The 9th Battalion, yes. Wow. Now, we this the 460 Brigade belonged to another division, not to division, to a Sinai division. This is commander of the division, General Adan. He also was the chief of the Armor Corps. So the Armor Corps headquarters became in wartime a division. So also when every meeting that I had after the meeting of some planning or something like this, I took a short conversation with the General Dan and said, 
also in your hat as a chief of the armor corps, I want to establish back my battalion to reorganize the battalion. He said, okay, only, you know, next day we'll do it. And day after day came, only after the crossing, he helped me also, yes, and, and I organized back the battalion. This is another story. Now, going back to 460 Brigade. This began on the 7th of October. In the 8th, it was something that I'm not so sure that it's good to report. The entire war in Sinai was a big, big something very wrong. It's very famous because we could maybe to change the situation on the 8th. In that time, we have three divisions there. And doesn't matter that each division is smaller in force than it was, you know, according to the standard after. But still three divisions. And because moving, for example, uh, the division of General Sharon moving it south and back, and our division, the Adan division, going to some kind of the battle said should be a kind of a divisional battle in the end of the day it was one and a half battalion because many many very bad decisions it's a would you call it the, just a fog of war sir just a, the fog of that first day first of all that you know that the reserve division who came for them they didn't have the experience of the two days that how it started and all of them had the memory of 67 maybe and this is an entire different war. The Egyptian army are fighting, not like in most of the places in 67. And very stubborn. Also, you know, in each war, each clashes, there is a kind of a curve of learning that you experience something. And from day to day, you are working different. You learn something, you behave different. For example, if you take an American troop and send them to some place, the beginning is like they were trained. Later, they are facing different, maybe, some other uh, enemies and different doctrine. And they have to adapt some other way of how to treat or how to behave. It takes time. Yes, sir. I think that's embaked in most of our military, especially the American and Israeli military, that leader development and the ability to, we're going to train for one way, but we expect you to be able to adapt. How can you change the book of that somebody is moving the cheese? This story about the, how do you call it, the, the monk who sold the Ferrari. You know the story? No, sir. The, they're saying that somebody has changed the situation. And you have to bear in mind that you are now in totally different situation. Maybe not what you were told. This is very, very difficult to accept, to adapt. But this is the only way how to deal with something. You have to open your mind that you are in a different situation. If you ask me, for example, frankly, when did you understand that you are in a war, not a tradition war, a totally war. Yes, sir. I think there's a famous quote, sir, not to misquote you, but after the Yom Kippur War, I think you were in a meeting, and correct me if I'm wrong, with Prime Minister Golda Meir. And the Defense Minister Moshe Dayan is there, and this topic comes up about being 
she's questioning why the IDF was unprepared. Was that correct? No, 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 not unprepared. It was a meeting on the western side of the Suez Canal after the first ceasefire, 22nd, I think, of October. And I was accidentally there, and I met the general Gorodish, Golen, who was the, the commander of this South Command. He knew me very well because in 67, he was the 7th Brigade commander and I was a company commander and he liked me very much. And he heard what happened to my battalion. So he came with the chief of staff, with uh, General Dayan and Golda Meyer, with helicopter. And he took me to the side and said, what happened? Tell me, tell me what happened in the first two days. And I told him, sir, it's a long story. Don't think that you have now a time and open mind to hear from me what happened there. By the way, I, I met him in London. And after two days, he went to Rome and he died there with a heart attack in Rome many years later. So I didn't want to come to the meeting with the prime minister. And that time, rumors began that the intelligent had all the information and so on and so forth. But suddenly I found myself, because I was speaking with General Gonen, that I was there very close to them. And one of the soldiers, a reserve soldier, asked her why you didn't make a preemptive attack if you had all the information. And I remember her answer. I am an old lady. I trusted these two gentlemen. She pointed on General Dayan and Chief of Staff General Dado. It made me very, very angry. And I asked her, Mrs. Prime Minister, I lost 67 for my soldier because you didn't understand and they left all of them. This was the end of the meeting. Later, I thought maybe I shouldn't speak like that, but I was so angry that the prime minister is saying, I am an old lady, I didn't understand that, and I trusted these two gentlemen. If you don't understand, don't be prime minister. What, the, what does it mean you don't understand in such a situation? She could say, I'm sorry, I misunderstood it, or something like that. It was very, very bad. You have to understand that all the reservists, they are feeling much more free to speak because they are civilians in uniform, but they are civilian. I was part of the regular army, but I was so angry that I thought to myself, I have to tell her. Yeah, very sad. Yes, sir. I can imagine, and I think you're right, and our senior leaders, civilian leadership needs to hear that sometimes. Yeah. If you are going to be a leader of a country, you have to think that maybe you'll be a leader in a very crucial time, not if something, nothing happening. Yes, sir. And take responsibility for your leadership. I agree with you, sir. So, sir, that you said that meeting is October 22nd. So I know, sir, to not to speed it up, but there's a one battle really interested in, and I know you weren't in the battle, but you were a part of the 460th during the battle. So basically the IDF has crossed onto the Western side of the canal and there's a battle for the city of Suez, basically injuring the, the city on October 24th, 25th. From personally me as an urban warfare scholar, it's a major battle in the terms of a lot of Western and even me uses it as a case study of the challenges of deploying armor into dense urban terrain, the use of combined arms and the use of infantry, that battle specifically is used to show the challenges of that, basically having armor vulnerability of armor, vulnerability of infantry in the unknown dense urban terrain. 
I didn't know if you could speak a little bit about the battle from what you remember. Uh, I thought that, Olafov thought that, you know, we had the information that we had was that remaining of units are in the city. There were no such kind of good intelligence or information what really is going on in Suez. Now, this is the main issue, that you have to have a good information. Where is the enemy? Where is the deploy? What is the way of acting that you're expecting from the enemy? And then to make your plan how to deal with that. The idea there was because they are only kind of remaining or soldiers who ran away from their unit and they are in the city, that the tanks can cross in the highway, shooting right and left, and then some infantry will catch some huge building, and this more or less will solve the entire uh, city of Suez surrounding. They fought, and it was a huge mistake how we operate the units there. It doesn't mean that there is no place for tanks, because later in many, many other urban areas, like you mentioned in Jenin and so on, many years later, and also in Gaza Strip, I know that every place that they had problem, they call immediately a tank to help them. So tank can do a lot, but first of all, you have to work very hard to get the much information that you have. You know, today with all the equipment that we have now, we, we know better to get an idea what's going on with the enemy, with all the drones, UAV and so on. Yes, sir. And you have to say the armor protection systems as well. And the armor protection is better and so on. So... The people are saying that there is no price for tank unit in urban warfare. It's not true. So you have to be a kind of mix of units. But first of all, to work very hard or intelligence. And there are some areas that you don't know what's going on. There is also another place, underground. Yes, sir. So you have to deal with the underground. Underground, you, have, you don't have to go inside. There are some other methods what to do that. Because always the enemy will want you to come to the place that they prepared you to come. Yeah, absolutely, sir. I talk about that a lot in, in dense urban terrain, and, and especially when you're penetrating a defense. You don't fight the exact way that the enemy wants you to fight. That's right. Now, I know for the battle of Suez City, that you're not going to have as much time as you ever want. And I know that for that specific battle, is the issue of time versus how much intelligence you had. They were trying to get to the city before the end of the ceasefire. And they, they were being rushed. There's a famous quote, I just have to say it, about the Battle of Suez. Basically, when the, the general is asking to go into Suez, everybody knows the ceasefire is coming. And the head general, General Gonan, says, If it's Stalingrad, don't go. If it's Beersheba, go. It means Beersheba in '48. How they conquered Beersheba in the independent war. This, I think, is what he meant by Beersheba. Yeah, absolutely, sir. And and basically, like you said, an intelligence gap, not knowing what was in there. That's right. And unfortunately, it ended with 80 dead, 120 wounded, 40 tanks destroyed. Basically, every tank that went into the city because the Egyptian soldiers had deployed ATGM company and tank hunting teams into it. So they basically, instead of the engagement they thought they would have, they drove right into the middle of an ambush that was set up. 
which you, you don't want to do. But like like you said, I'm a huge proponent. And I think in part one, you talked about starting off as an infantryman and then going to armor. So I'm an infantryman, but I don't want to go to any urban fight without my armor just because you can't break a defense, I think, unless you have all combined arms, everything in there with you. That's right. In this aspect of large-scale combat operations and complex layered defenses, and we've been talking about open desert defense and attack, I didn't know if you had any thoughts of, about these complex layered defense and the role of armor. I remember I am a graduate of Armor Officer Advanced Course, 1974, 75, 76 in Fort Knox, Kentucky. In that time, General DePew was the head of the trade-off. I think he established, I think, the trade-off. Yes, sir. I remember a lecture from him and later <laughs> we were in Fort Knox about active defense or forward defense. This was his words, I think. It was very interesting. Also in the IDF, you know, that it was a kind of debate how to defend the Sinai. And there were two ascols, one called mobile defense, and the second was fixed defense or something like that, if I can translate it to English. And the problem with all those theories, how do carry it into practice? Because, look, it's Suez Canal, it's true that it's uh, 150 kilometers or 200 kilometers from the old border of Israel. And it's a kind of a, a strategic uh, depth, but how to defend this area. It's very easy to say we don't have any strong points and we, the tanks will move from here to there. We have some observations points and that's all. Now let's go some weeks later, the enemy will penetrate and will have some areas and do whatever you mines and whatever you want. How can you control that? So if you go from a practical point of view, it's very complicated not to have some area that you are sitting there, but on the other hand, every place that you are constantly there, it's also become inferiority because the enemy knows exactly where you are and they will do exactly. This what happened also in the IDF with Lebanon. You know, the beginning, I was, Brigade commander in one of the of the operation there, and I was a division commander in the first Lebanon war. And we thought, most of the commanders, that we have to do something and to go back and to defend the northern side of Israel from Israel and not inside Lebanon. Because immediately when you are there, you want to defend your unit. You know all the supply and support has to come. You have to secure the roads, and then you are building some that matter what how you call them some points with a beginning with some soldiers and later there are some artillery you have to to give them some cover and protection and so on and so on and slowly slowly you have a marginal line <laughs> it happened to your army in vietnam i think also i don't know what is the answer yes sir i guess there's never a right answer you just have to be ready to adapt yeah one thing it's it's important in Sinai. One, what was the the main mistake? You saw there is what we called in planning of defense a rear defense line. The rear defense line in the Suez Canal was the line of contact. This is the huge mistake. 
You cannot have the real defense lines. This means the, the line that you have to hold till the last soldier and so on and so forth to be the line of the contact. Yes, sir. That doesn't get over me as I know that the Ninth Armor was trying to get to that defensive line. Was there ever a point where you understood that they would not survive it, but it's what they had to do? Yeah. In speaking about the use of armor in urban terrain, do you think that the from your time in the 73 war, northern Lebanon, do you think that the IDF thoughts about how to use the tank in urban terrain has changed over the years? First of all, nowadays, if I'm speaking, going to nowadays, they're speaking about a combat team. And it means that there is no any place that the tanks will be by themselves. So part of a combat team, it depends on which, which kind of parts in the, the combat team you need, according to the mission. Of, but I think that the main change is working in combats, in combined teams. This should be the right way to do it. And I think that the IDF going in this direction. Yes, sir. And I can't agree more. I, I know we all train our units separately. So you have the armor unit training, the infantry unit training. But we know in combat, these are combined arms teams, especially in urban terrain that you need. But the change also in your army, for example, I know that even the schools are now combined. Yes, sir. Yeah, we have our infantry and armor school combined into the maneuver center. And this has changed something in the doctrine? That's a tough question, sir. But I do think, especially when I, as an observer of large-scale combat operations in urban terrain, how hard it is to bring all of our combat arms, especially tacking into urban terrain or doing a mission. You need to practice that use of armor and infantry together, the use of engineering assets with them. And all I think all armies are challenged by, yes, our doctrine says we do this, but actually training it and exercising it so it isn't as hard of a learning curve when we throw it all together. Sir, my last two questions, hopefully I think they'll be easy and I think I've almost answered them myself. I was told there's Israeli sayings in the Armor Corps. The number one is that the tank is iron, but the man is steel. Yeah, that's right. What does that mean? All over the world. The most important are the soldiers, who are the soldiers and the spirit of the soldiers. I'm sure after being in many, many clashes during my career that the most important are how you give your soldiers the added value of the armed forces. And I saw that the tanks or other equipment, they are only a piece of metal. And the soldiers that are in their spirit can do from this steel much more than the steel. I'll give you an, an example. In my battalion in 73, I told you that we had one platoon in the northern strong point in, along the Suez Canal. In the first five minutes, the platoon leader was killed by the artillery because they were in the bunker and when the artillery began, they ran from the bunker to the tanks. On the way, he was hit. And the sergeant of the platoon took the lead. This sergeant named Shlomo, if before the war, you told me, John, coming to visit in my battalion, put all your sergeants from right to left or from left to right, from the best one to the, not, not to the best. <laughs> okay, let's say like that. Where do you think this Shlomo was? Not in the first, yes, sir. No, not even in the middle. But when the war started, he was kind of a hero and he acted 
for two days with this remaining of the platoon. And later he led way out from the strong point back to our line, almost was hit by Egyptian tank and uh, jumped from the tank. Even he took reservist soldiers that he found on the way, a wounded one, on his back, and they went all the way in the swamp to join us. And that time, sadly, a reserve unit came, it was the third day, and deployed there, and they heard that there are many commando troops, Egyptian commando troops in the swamps, and they thought that they are Egyptian. And they shot them, then they killed him, and another soldier from my battalion. He got the highest decoration equivalent to your uh, Congress medal. Yes, sir. We had two in my battalion. By the way, we got 18 decoration in my battalion, uh, which is a lot. Yes, sir. I think that he emphasized what does it mean that the man is... Yes, sir. I think your example, if anybody wants to... Another example, just listen to part one of this series of you, sir, as a battalion commander with the battalion unfortunately destroyed, immediately going to take another battalion all the way down to where your tank under you gets destroyed, your APC, it's still the the soldier a leader that is the valuable asset. So the last question, sir, and this one, I'm an infantryman, but I get it, especially as an infantryman who specializes in urban warfare. What does the saying, the man in the tank wins, mean? This was uh, something that we thought that what happened every place, in all the clashes that we have, some of them were described in this discussion, on the end of the day, if you take off only Yom Kippur War even, even American experts said that the tanks saved the country. So we thought that it means it's not only to save, that we have to win. In every situation, you know, in our situation, that we are surrounding in the 21st century to speak about that, it looked not intelligent, but it, this is the truth. <laughs> There are countries that are not recognized the state of Israel to exist and want to destroy it. Let's speak about even Iran. So we cannot have to have it that we are not winning. So we say because the tanks are leading every place, tank will win. Yes, sir. I'm a firm believer. Say it often as much as I can to people. If you're going to have an urban fight, which I think you are, whether it's in Israel, whether it's in North Korea, you better have some tanks with you. Sir, well, I can't thank you enough for your time and telling and sharing with us these amazing stories. And I know some of those memories are, are not fond. There's so many lessons there I think that our listeners will take. I can't thank you enough for your time. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much, John. Thanks for listening to the Urban Warfare Project podcast. The podcast is produced by the Modern War Institute at West Point. What you hear in each episode are the views of their participants and do not represent the positions of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. You can subscribe to the Urban Warfare Project podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And be sure to check out NDY's other podcasts, as well as the new articles we're publishing every day on our website. Thanks again for listening.